It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. Growing up as a young Cree woman in Manitoba, she survived a notorious residential school. Determined to change the world for other girls just like her, she wanted to become a teacher. Presented with limited options, she left her home at the Norway House Cree Nation to continue her education in the PA, Manitoba. She settled into her new temporary life there. She had friends, a boyfriend, school, and a kind host family that she lived with. On a cold night in November of 1971, she was abducted off the street as she walked home to safety. She was taken to a remote field where, in her last moments on Earth, she was subjected to unimaginable cruelty. Four men were responsible for her murder, and many more kept their secret. And justice, in this case, came slowly. Or, not at all. Over the years, her murderers' names have faded into the background, but her name remains just as important today as it did in 1971. In this episode, we discuss the murder of Helen Betty Osborne, and you are listening to True North True Crime. Welcome everyone to True North True Crime. We are thrilled to have you here, whether you're a longtime listener or new to the podcast. As an independent Canadian podcast, our mission is to bring attention to missing persons and victims of violent crime. If you have a case that needs attention, feel free to reach out to us at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Now let's jump right into tonight's episode. So in this episode, we are discussing the 1971 murder of 19-year-old Helen Betty Osborne, who most often went simply by Betty. Betty's body was found in a remote area of Manitoba on November 13, 1971. Justice in this case came slowly, and in some ways not at all. This case is referred to as one of the earliest documented cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada and established the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry specifically to look into the circumstances surrounding the investigation and the murder of Betty Osborne. 
This case has been widely covered in Canadian media and was the inspiration for a CBC award-winning series titled Conspiracy of Silence. In recent years, the case was covered by David Ridgen in an episode of Someone Knows Something during his investigation into the murder of Carrie Ann Brown in Thompson, Manitoba. We put this case together using publicly available news articles. The majority of the information in this episode we pulled from the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry. So in this episode, we have modernized the language used in the documents to align with contemporary journalistic standards. When mentioning government agencies, reports, or inquiries, we will adopt the term Aboriginal as it appears in government documents uh, that we are referencing. The term Aboriginal, um, for those outside of Canada, is a broad term that encompasses First Nations, Métis, and Inuit in Canada, as defined in the Canadian Constitution. Nevertheless, whenever possible, we will use the more commonly used term, indigenous, when speaking in general terms, similar to how murdered and missing indigenous women and girls refers to Inuit, First Nations, and Métis women. We aim to use indigenous as a more inclusive term. In specific instances throughout this episode, we will use First Nations or Cree to refer to the ancestral background of some of the individual people featured in this story um, when we know that is in fact the case. Please note that this episode contains sensitive content, and we want to add this additional content warning. This episode addresses the topics of sexual assault, torture, and murder involving a 19-year-old First Nations woman. The details presented in this case are distressing to listen to. We will strive to maintain a clinical tone when discussing these matters. Additionally, this episode explores themes of anti-Indigenous racism and gender-based violence against women. Helen Betty Osborne was born on July 16, 1952. She was born in the Kinseo Sipi Cree Nation, which has a population of about 7,000 people. The area is also known as Norway House. Despite being on the land of the Swampy Cree, Norway House is named by the Norwegian settlers who established it as the principal inland fur trading depot for the Hudson Bay Company. In the modern era, Norway House and Norway House 17 are a part of the Treaty 5 territory. So Betty Osborne was born in a remote Cree community at the northern end of Lake Winnipeg, and she was the eldest of 12 children to Justine and Joe Osborne. Growing up in Norway House limited her access to education as the local Roman Catholic school only taught up to grade 8. Despite this, Betty Osborne had a strong desire to become a teacher, which led her to leave her community at the age of 17 to attend a residential school for Indigenous youth in 1969. This was the Guy Hill Residential School, located 29 kilometers from the town of The Paw in Clearwater. This school was also run by the Roman Catholic Church, and its objective was to assimilate Indigenous students into white society. None of the teachers at the school were Indigenous, and students were punished for speaking their Indigenous languages. Guy Hill Residential School has an incredibly troubling history of abuse. However, despite the difficult environment, Betty was a good student and was well-liked. Her desire to learn and become a teacher was obvious to those around her. One friend remembers being in class with Betty, and the following is an excerpt from a CBC interview with Rita McIver. The two friends were from different communities, but they'd attended residential school together before reuniting as classmates again in the Paw, about 630 kilometers northwest of Winnipeg. Rita recalled Betty was sitting in class and... 
as was often the case, asked Rita about her homework for the day. Quote, she had the sharpest pencils and she'd poke me and say, what does that teacher want us to do for an assignment? Because she was too shy to ask the teacher. She liked to laugh, but she was shy. Rita accommodated her, though she teased her right back. Quote, why are you asking me? Because none of us ever do homework. Still, Rita said she admired her friend. Betty was always taking care of herself, how she looked, how she dressed, and how she took care of her work. Me, I'm the opposite, so that's the thing I remember most. So, after two years of living at Guy Hill, Betty moved to the Paw to attend high school at Margaret Barber Collegiate. In September 1971, the Department of what is now called Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Canada arranged room and board for Betty with William and Patricia Benson in their home on Lathlin Avenue. William, who was Métis, worked at the Churchill Forest Industries Complex as a production foreman and was responsible for training sawmill employees. The couple apparently showed real care about Betty's welfare and provided her with a safe and caring environment to live. So for those unfamiliar, the PAW, and that's P-A-S, is a northwestern town in Manitoba. It is located about 600 kilometers north of Winnipeg and about 35 kilometers east of the Saskatchewan border. In the 1970s, it had a population of about 5,000 people. By most definitions, the PAW is a remote community. While the area is beautiful, the winters are tough. The following description of the PAW is from the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry from 1988. The Saskatchewan River separates the town of the Paw from the main part of the Paw Cree Reserve, but the division of the community was more than just geographical in 1971. The Paw was divided into two parts, one white and one indigenous. Few indigenous people were employed in the town. It remained largely non-indigenous. It is easy to conclude that the town of the Paw deliberately had excluded indigenous people from its midst yet it depended on them as customers and consumers. While there was some superficial communication, the communities might as well have been worlds apart. Neither community encroached far into the life of the other or felt welcome in it. There appear to have been few who visited in the homes of each other in other communities. Apparently, part of this estrangement was due to the general difference in economic status. It was also due to the fact that the lifestyles and interests of each were basically different. Members of each community were clearly identifiable to the other, and skin color immediately seemed to raise stereotypical feelings of fear, suspicion, and dislike. These attitudes existed in both communities in 1971, and to a large extent, still exist at the time of this inquiry. Betty settled into her studies and life in the PAW. Betty, as we mentioned, was a shy, young person, but she had several very close friends. She was described as quiet and serious, and one of her friends, Eva Simpson, stated that she was a very kind person and a good friend. She was also lonely for home. Simpson went on to say, She was hardworking in school, and she liked to have a good laugh, I guess. And we tried to cover up our feelings because we were lonesome to go home, and yet we knew we had no way to survive if we were in Norway House, so we kind of hung around together. Betty also had a boyfriend, a young man named Cornelius Biggity. The Aboriginal Justice Report states, like other students from Guy Hill, Osborne did not appear to have had any close white friends, but may have gained some white acquaintances through activities at school. Her relationship with the white community of the PAW was distant and typical of that of most Aboriginal people, even those who had spent all of their lives there. 
So to summarize, Betty Osborne was 19 years old in 1971. She had left her own community to attend school with the goal of one day being a teacher. She survived a Canadian residential school and at 19 years old was living with a sponsored family in the PAW as she continued her education. She had friends and a boyfriend and was known for being kind, quiet, and at times serious. She had goals and dreams. All of those dreams she was proving were achievable. But on a cold November night in 1971, those dreams ended. So at 6 p.m. on Friday, November 12, 1971, Betty Osborne arrived home for supper at the home of Patricia Benson, where she was living. An hour later, she went to St. Anthony's Hospital to visit a friend. There she met George Ross, an old friend whom she had known from her childhood visits to Cross Lake. Betty phoned Patricia Benson to ask if she could bring George home for a visit. George and Betty bought some beer, and together they went to the Benson home, and they sat talking and drinking until around 10 p.m. Patricia Benson came in around that time and said, okay, time to wrap it up. So at 10.30, Betty asked if she could go to the store, and Patricia Benson agreed. Betty and George went to the downtown area of the Paw. She passed by the lobby of the Cambrian Hotel, where she saw her boyfriend Cornelius with some of his friends. At this time, which was around 11 p.m., Betty and Cornelius argued because Cornelius was hanging out with another woman. At 11.10 p.m., Betty and George left the hotel lobby and went to the Northern Light Cafe where they sat with some other friends. From the cafe, George, Betty, and two of their friends, Eva and Marianne, went back to the Benson home and drank some more beer inside of the Benson's uh, backyard shed. Then shortly after midnight, Marianne and Eva left the shed, and then George and Betty left the shed to return downtown um, to the Paw. So then at 12.30, George left Betty and went home. Now it's not known what Betty did in those last few hours of her life. We do know that she was seen passing the Cambrian Hotel at 12.45, and then she was later seen at a dance at the Legion at approximately 2 a.m., Then at 2.15 in the early morning of Saturday, November 13th, 1971, Rebecca, who was a longtime friend, saw Betty walking west on Edward Street away from the dance. This was the last sighting of Betty Osborne. That night in the town of the Paw, four men between the ages of 18 and 25 were drinking and cruising around in a light-colored two-door 1967 Chrysler. Earlier that night at around 8 p.m., one of the men borrowed the car from his father. He picked up two friends, and the fourth man would join them later. They purchased some beer and drove around the paw. When they ran out of beer, they broke into a friend's apartment and stole some fortified wine. Looking to keep the night going, they drove to the dance that was happening at the Legion. The three men then drank more beer in the washroom at the Legion. The three men returned to the car and picked up the fourth man, who was very intoxicated, and while driving around, they formulated a plan. They wanted to find a woman to have sex with, specifically an indigenous woman. While driving along 3rd Avenue in the Paw, they saw Betty Osborne walking down the street alone. This was around 2.30 a.m., just minutes after Betty was last seen leaving the dance by her friend Rebecca. There is no evidence that indicated that any of the men had a personal connection to Betty. The men pulled the car over and called out to Betty. 
The men attempted to convince her to go to a party with them, but Betty declined and attempted to walk away. Now, one or more of the men exited the vehicle, and keep in mind this was a two-door car, so what happened next needed a level of coordination. The man in the front passenger seat opened the door and let the man behind him out. That man grabbed Betty and put her into the middle of the back seat. The men then closed that door and drove off. With Betty in the back seat, the men then drove 24 kilometers away to a family cabin in Clearwater Lake. While in the back seat, Betty was assaulted sexually and physically, and the two men ripped her blouse open, grabbed at her breasts, and hit her over and over again. At around 4 a.m., a local taxi driver spotted the car zigzagging along Highway 287. He attempted to pass, but it seemed too dangerous. The car then turned off the highway to head towards where cabins were. Upon making the turn, the light-colored Chrysler hit a ditch but continued on. At the cabin, Betty was dragged from the car and attacked by one man while the others stood around drinking and watching. Evidence suggests that others participated in the beating. Betty continued to struggle and scream, and because her assailants were afraid they might be heard, she was forced back into the car and driven further from town to a pump house near the lake. At least some of her clothing was removed by her assailants in the car. At the pump house, she was once again taken from the car by one or more of the assailants, and the beating continued. Her clothes, those which were not removed earlier, were taken from her. Wearing only her winter boots, she was viciously beaten and stabbed with a screwdriver more than 50 times. Her face was smashed beyond recognition. The evidence suggests that two people then dragged her body into the bush, and her clothes were hidden at a second location near to where her body was. One man raced back to the car and started it while two men disposed of Betty's body. The fourth man lay drunk in the back seat. The driver called out, let's go, and the men responded, just a minute. Soon after this, they returned to the car and one of them announced, she's dead. The four men then left and returned to the paw going along Highway 287. While en route, the screwdriver was cleaned off and thrown out the car. When the men returned to town, they went their separate ways, but not before agreeing to, quote, keep it quiet. The following morning, Saturday, November 13th, Patricia and William Benson became concerned that Betty had not come home. They quickly reported her as a missing person to the local RCMP detachment. Between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m., a 14-year-old boy named Kenneth was with his father, Steve, and a family friend named Danny. The three had driven out to the pump house at Clearwater Lake to go fishing. They set up on the shore at the end of the breakwater at the pump house, and having tired of fishing, Kenneth wandered off into the bush looking for rabbits. At approximately 11.30 a.m., as he was returning to the parking area around the pump house, he noticed something in the bush. The bush was too thick to allow him to discern what he had glimpsed, so he went out to the parking lot and then back in from another direction. There, he discovered the body of Betty Osborne. He informed his father and they went to a nearby airport to call the police. If it had not been for the young teen's chance stroll, it is likely that Betty's body would not have been discovered until the following spring. In fact, it may have never been found. Kenneth and his father returned from the airport accompanied by Staff Sergeant Robert Ayers, an RCMP pilot in charge of the Air Division stationed at the airport. 
Ayers entered the bush. He did so by walking in the boy's footprints, and after viewing the body, he sent Kenneth and his dad back to the airport to call the RCMP detachment in the paw. He then awaited the arrival of the other officers. Sergeant Larry Grosinick, an officer with 20 years of service, was then in charge of the rural detachment at the Paw. He arrived at the scene accompanied by Constable Ken Morrison, and by 1.45 p.m., more officers had arrived on scene. After an investigation at the crime scene, Betty's body was transported to the morgue at St. Anthony's Hospital in the Paw around 4 p.m., According to records, 31 people, including taxi drivers and residents of the Paw Reserve, attempted to identify the body between 5.15 p.m. and 4.05 a.m. the next day. None of them were able to do so. At 9.55 p.m. on November 13th, William Benson, at whose house Betty was living at the time, came to the morgue but could not identify her positively because of the condition of her battered body and her face. She was unrecognizable. When he was unable to identify her at the morgue, the police went to his home and took fingerprints from one of her school books. Using these fingerprints, 10 minutes after midnight on November 14, 1971, the police were able to positively identify the body as Betty Osborne. Helen Betty Osborne was just 19 years old. She had traveled to the Paw to continue her education and to build her life there. Instead, her life was taken in a heinous act of violence. A coat of silence swept over the paw that would last years, but eventually, the dam would break. We're now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Thank you for supporting our sponsors by giving them a listen. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the life and tragic death of Helen Betty Osborne, a 19-year-old Cree woman who traveled to the Paw, Manitoba to continue her education as a teacher. On a cold winter night in November of 1971, Betty was abducted, sexually assaulted, and brutally murdered by four men. While rumors swirled around the town, the men did not face prosecution for 16 years. And even then, most would not consider the outcome to be justice. The first investigations into Betty's murder began. 36 exhibits were gathered at the murder scene and about 120 photographs were taken. 
Blood samples were taken and analyzed, footprints were examined, photographed, and compared, and the imprints left by the tires of an automobile were also examined and photographed. The whole area was measured and mapped. Other physical evidence was found as well. At 1.15 p.m. on November 13th, the same day as the murder, a passing motorist picked up a screwdriver he had found in the middle of the highway a few hundred yards west of the Pump House Road. This screwdriver has not been linked directly to the murder. However, the next day, on November 14th, a constable retrieved a pair of gloves, two pieces of a bra, and a blood-stained paper bag from the ditch on the north side of the same highway. Later that same day, a police dog discovered another screwdriver. This one was blood-stained and presumed to be the murder weapon, and it was close to where the gloves and the bra had been found earlier. Seven months later, in June of 1972, a local resident walking her dog discovered Betty's glasses in the ditch on the south side of Highway 287 near the cabin. The medical examination also led to some revelations. Betty Osborne's body was found approximately 23 meters into the bush adjacent to the pump house at Clearwater Lake. The evidence showed that she had first lain to the west of some mounds of earth 12 meters from the edge of the bush. She was then dragged further into the bush to the place where she was found. The lack of any melting of the snow at this point suggests that Betty was already dead when she was left there. The autopsy photographs make it clear that Osborne suffered a vicious beating, particularly to her face. This occurred either during the venting of some unimaginable fury or with the intent of making her identification impossible. Her clothing, other than her boots, was removed and hidden over 30 meters away below some rocks on the breakwater. Obviously, her boots must have been off at one point and then put on again. And whoever murdered her acted in a brutal fashion. While no forensic evidence of rape was detected at the scene, such as semen or other fluids, it is clear that sexual assault and dehumanization were motives in this murder. The autopsy report adds some details as to what was obvious. Along with well over 50 stab wounds, her skull, cheekbones, and palate were broken. Her lungs were damaged and one kidney was torn. Her body showed extensive bruising. The massive number of puncture wounds to the head and torso confirmed that a screwdriver was at least one weapon used. The other weapon or weapons presumably were hands or feet or some other blunt instrument. It is impossible to conclude with absolute certainty at what point during this violation that Betty Osborne died. Investigators initially focused on Betty's indigenous friends, especially her boyfriend Cornelius, who was just 17 years old. After all, he was seen by witnesses having an argument with Betty that night. Cornelius and several other friends were subjected to prolonged interrogations, but they were all cleared. Cornelius actually passed a polygraph test. And what about the taxi driver in the car that he watched driving erratically down the highway? Well, with the taxi driver's help, they did locate the car in December of 1971, just one month after the crime. It was owned by a well-respected man in the community named Harold Bud Colgan. And Harold had a son named Lee Colgan, who often used his car. However, the car was not searched. Or it was searched, but not very well. It all depends on which story you want to go with. There seem to be two competing narratives about what actually happened with the car and whether it was searched or not searched. But eventually this lead was dropped, so the car was searched or not searched and then they just kind of stopped thinking about the car. But suddenly the arrival of an anonymous letter at the Paw Detachment on May 3rd, 1972 represented a major breakthrough in this case. 
It read the following. Dear Sirs, the following information was related to persons in the fall of 1971 concerning the murdering of a young lady later found on a beach near La Paz, Manitoba. The story was related by Lee Colgan, being in a state of intoxication and near tears, that he had been driving his car accompanied by Jim Houghton and Norman Manger. There were possibly two or three mentioned, but their names are forgotten. They had forced the girl into his car, where it was then driven to the murder site, the girl being raped by all. She had threatened police action. She was then murdered using a screwdriver, punch, or similar instrument. Colgan lives in constant fear of information possible being forwarded to the local authorities. It is hoped that the investigation by the officers can produce results. The informants do not wish to identify as reprisals were threatened by Lee Colgan against the friends and the families concerned. These men are all of the local area of the Paw, Manitoba. By 1972, the investigation had some new revelations. With this letter and the rumor mill around the Paw, the RCMP had four suspects in this case. Three were named in the letter, and a fourth became clear as the investigation went on. The four men who were with Betty Osborne when she was killed came from different backgrounds. Lee Colgan was the owner of the vehicle used in the crime that night. He was an 18-year-old student at the same school as Betty at Margaret Barber Collegiate, who worked part-time at a local clothing store. He lived at home with his parents and his father managed the government liquor store and his mother was a music teacher. But Lee was known to be a violent drinker who talked too much. Across the street from the Colgans was the home of the Houghton family. In November of 1971, James Houghton was 23 years old and lived at home while attending technical school. The Houghtons and the Colgans both had cottages at Clearwater Lake, and Houghton had babysat Colgan as a child. Despite the differences in their ages, they were friends. Another friend of Houghton's was Norman Manger, who at 25 was the oldest of the four. Manger's mother was a First Nations woman who died when he was just two years old. He didn't see much of his father when he was growing up either. After completing grade 12, Norman worked at a succession of jobs in northern Manitoba and in Winnipeg. But by 1971, he had not been working for a year or so and had been drinking heavily. He didn't have a permanent home and by his own admission had turned into a bum. And that's a quote. Dwayne Johnson was the fourth man that night. And by all accounts, he was also the most vicious. He was 18 years old in 1971 and was also a member of a motorcycle gang which had frequent encounters with the police. His parents had separated and he boarded with a local family. Johnston apparently had virulent views on Indigenous people, and he frequently made racist comments to ridicule Indigenous students in his classes. Colgan said of Johnston, quote, I've never seen anybody hate Native people so much in my life. So these were the four men whom Betty Osborne was to encounter early in the morning of November 13, 1971. So in May of 1972, armed with the anonymous letter and some rumors, Colgan's car was finally seized and searched. This search took place at the RCMP detachment in Regina. A small piece of brassiere strap and some hair were found under the back seat. Analysis showed that the piece of brassiere strap came from the same brassiere that was found on the side of the road near the murder site. Although the hair could not be identified positively as being Osborne's, it was found to be of a similar type. 
A small blood sample, which could not be identified positively, was found on the back seat. No fingerprints of significance were found. And keep in mind, they had um, nine months to clean the car uh, before it was searched. So there is no doubt that the delay in searching the car led to the lack of evidence. In September of 1972, the RCMP went on an investigative blitz. They interviewed three of the suspects multiple times. They even attempted polygraph tests, which were declined. It should also be noted that Dwayne Johnson never spoke to the police. The RCMP went on to search cabins at Clearwater Lake owned by two of the men's families, including the one where Betty was beaten, but no new evidence was found. By the end of 1972, lawyer Darcy Bancroft was acting for all four of the suspects, and he made certain that none of them would speak to the police. He wrote letters demanding that the RCMP cease, quote, harassing his clients, and the four suspects had erected a wall of silence between themselves and the police. The investigation was at a standstill. However, when Bancroft died several years later, investigators quickly attempted to interview the suspects again with limited results. So for the next 11 years, very little happened in this case. The four suspects went on to live their lives, some of them finding jobs away from Manitoba. Others had children. They lived their lives. However, in 1983, 12 years after Betty was murdered, RCMP investigator Bob Urbanowski took over the file a file that at this point only had two investigators working on it. Over the following years, Urbanowski reviewed the file multiple times. He resubmitted evidence and utilized wiretaps and informants. He even took out an ad in a local paper looking for information. Tips again flooded in, with many locals stating, if I know who did it, I just assumed the police did. As a result of the information gathered through these techniques, Urbanowski was able in December 1985 to lay charges against Colgan and Johnston. The charges were authorized in August of 1986, and in an attempt to gather further information, Urbanowski submitted another plan, which included more wiretabs using 10 full-time investigators for six weeks and 4,000 staff hours. These investigators listened to phone conversation of the suspects in order to gauge their reactions to the arrest of first Colgan and then Johnston. The second set of wiretaps began on September 30th of 1986. Colgan was arrested on October 3rd, and as a result of a national news media blitz at the time of Colgan's arrest, two more persons came forward with information. One of these was Catherine Dick, the author of the anonymous letter, which had first given police the names of three of the suspects. Johnston was arrested on October 27th, and on November 23rd, the wiretaps were terminated. At the time of Colgan's arrest, his lawyer, Donald McIver, told the police that Colgan eventually would reveal to them his role in the murder. Just prior to the preliminary hearing, Colgan offered to give testimony in return for immunity from prosecution, and that offer was accepted. As a result of his statement, it became possible to charge Houghton, who was arrested on March 15, 1987. The final involvement of the RCMP in the investigative aspects of the case occurred on November 10th and 11th of 1987, when they located Manger and convinced him to testify at the trial of Houghton and Johnston. This brought an end to an investigation that was marred by significant errors, and the case was handed over to Crown. While the RCMP put a good deal of dedicated effort into solving the case, the early missteps considerably delayed its resolution. And had it not been for the determination of Constable Robert Urbanowski, 
charges might have never been laid against anyone. We are now going to go over the evidence that was placed against each of the men, keeping in mind that Lee Colgan had traded his testimony for immunity, meaning that he will never be charged in relation to this case. So the evidence against Norman Manger, and I now realize that that's probably Norman Manger, was the weakest. All accounts placed him in the car that night. He was incredibly intoxicated and allegedly did not leave the car. Norman was the fourth man to join the group that night. He didn't go out with them. They met him at the dance at the Legion, and then they took him for a drive. And by all accounts, again, he was incredibly intoxicated. However, there was evidence that he would have been the one to open the passenger side door um, that allowed Johnson to run out or Colgan to run out and grab Betty. And then he, because he, it was a two-door car, so he would have had to got out, pull the seat forward, allow the other man out. They grab Betty and then pull her in the car. Then he puts the seat back and pulls the door closed. So here is his statement from November 11th, 1987. I was pretty drunk that night. I ended up at the dance. Somehow I ended up going for a ride. There were three other guys there with me. There was more liquor being drunk at this time also. I don't recall picking up the girl or where she was picked up. I imagine she was picked up in town. The next thing I can remember is her being pulled through a snowbank. It was dark, and I had this terrible feeling of, oh my God, what's happening here? I got this awful fear, and I covered my ears, or something, and I tried not to think about what was happening. I was in the front seat on the passenger side. So the Crown struggled to find enough evidence to prove intent with Norman. That was the issue, was they couldn't prove his intent. So as a result, he was not charged. He did agree to give evidence against Houghton and Johnson. So we have Colgan and now Norman Manger or Norman Manger are not being charged. One has immunity and the other one, they don't believe they have enough evidence to prove intent. So the evidence against Lee Colgan revolved around the fact that he told many, many people about his involvement. There were wiretaps as well of him speaking about the murder. He also used his dad's car that night and cleaned it afterwards. So Colgan was originally charged with murder on October 3rd, 1986, but did not stand trial. Just before he was scheduled to appear at his preliminary hearing to determine if his case would go to trial, he sought and was granted immunity against prosecution for, quote, any offense in any way related to the murder, end quote, in return for his testimony at the trial of Houghton and Johnson. So it's important to note here that the investigators and the Crown did not know the extent of Colgan's involvement in this case before they gave him immunity. Colgan did not admit to them any circumstances that might have led to charges. He only stated to the Crown, quote, I was there. So as much as they had the wiretaps and they had witnesses and all these people who said this guy talks about the murder all the time, they didn't necessarily know definitively the extent to which he participated in the murder. So when they gave him immunity... According to him, he was just, quote, there. So more evidence came to light after he had immunity. Other things that need to be taken into account here is that it was Colgan's car, but according to the evidence, he was not driving when Betty was abducted. He was in the backseat assaulting her, and he did drive the car back from the lake after the murder. So we're going to go through the evidence against Jim Houghton, and this relied on one of the other defendants' testimony, specifically Colgan. So there's, there's a lot of information going on here and there's lying, so we're going to do our best to make sure it's clear, uh, but bear with us. So 
It was Houghton's parents' cabin where the assault on Betty began before they moved to Clearwater Lake where her body was eventually found. Colgan's evidence was that Houghton was the driver of the car which pulled over next to Betty, and Houghton was a party to the plan to take Betty to the lake. Colgan also said that it was Houghton who drove the car out of town to his parents' cabin and then to the pump house. From Colgan's evidence at the trial, it is clear that Betty was alive when Houghton got out of the car at the pump house and then dead when he got back into the car. The drag marks and footprints on each side of Betty's body made it clear that two people dragged her to the spot where she was found. The two men who dragged Betty's body into the bush were Houghton and Johnston. Unlike the others, Jim Houghton never spoke to anyone about that night, making the case against him much more difficult. So Dwayne Johnston was portrayed as the most brutal of the four men. Dwayne was the person who grabbed Betty off of the street and he put her in the backseat between himself and Lee Colgan. And this is where Colgan and Johnston began attacking Betty. It was Colgan and Johnston who dragged Betty from the car at the cabin and beat her while the other two watched. And according to testimony, it was Johnston who pulled Betty from the car when they parked at the lake. Colgan's statement was it was Johnston alone who murdered her while the others simply sat in the car. So Lee Colgan was given immunity and not charged, and the Crown felt there wasn't enough evidence to charge Norman Manger. In 1987, a trial was held against Dwayne Johnson and Jim Houghton. They were both charged with the second-degree murder of Helen Betty Osborne. Colgan's story was by no means accurate. However, it essentially went like this. Houghton was driving the car with an intoxicated manger in the passenger seat, the front passenger seat. Colgan and Johnson were in the back. Houghton pulled up to Betty. Manger opened the door and Johnson pulled her into the car. Colgan and Johnson assaulted her in the back seat. This continued until they got to the cabin. Then Colgan claims that at the lake, Colgan and Manger stayed in the car while Johnson and Houghton murdered Betty. Then Colgan drove the car with all four men back to town. Okay, so at the end of the trial, the jury deliberated. And Jim Houghton, who drove the car that night, who stopped the car to abduct Betty, who drove her to two different locations that resulted in her death, well, he was acquitted on the charges. Aside from Colgan's testimony, there was little else against him. He had been super tight-lipped for 16 years. It can only be assumed that the jury did not believe Colgan's testimony of that night with regards to Houghton and his participation. The evidence against Johnson was stronger. Uh, this included admissions that he made to other people. Um, he also had wiretaps against him. However, the case against him, while stronger, was still kind of weak. Norman Manger, who was not charged, also gave evidence against Johnson and Houghton. So Johnson did not take the stand to refute any of the claims made by Colgan. In the end, though, the jury convicted Dwayne Johnson for the second-degree murder of Helen Betty Osborne. He was the only person to be held criminally responsible for her murder. So we have four men who drove around that night who participated in the murder, the brutal assault and sexual assault of Helen Betty Osborne. And of the, f the four, we have uh, Lee Colgan, who uh, traded his information for immunity uh, from prosecution for his participation. Norman Manger was not charged. Um, Houghton was acquitted. And Dwayne Johnson was found guilty. One person was found guilty for this murder. 
So Dwayne Johnson served 10 years of a life sentence before being released on October 10th, 1997. He remains on full parole for the duration of his life sentence. Uh, and from what we understand, he continues to live in Manitoba. Lee Colgan died of an extended illness, uh, possibly due to heavy drinking, and he died in 2004. Jim Houghton continued on with his life, and he presently lives in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and details of Norman Manger's life are unknown. So, unsurprisingly, the murder of Helen Betty Osborne continued to affect her family for decades. It affects us today, said her cousin Gordy Ross. My mom, my one auntie, she still hurts today. And every time she thinks about it, she just can't take it. Another cousin and MMIWG advocate Darlene Osborne stated the following to CBC's David Ridgen. When Helen Betty got murdered, after that the families became very dysfunctional. And then the sons and daughters, they became very angry. And you know, a lot of those sons ended up in jail. In and out of jail because they didn't know how to deal with their sister's death. Because there was no help for them at all, nobody helped them. Nobody paid any attention to them. Nobody cared. And it was just Betty's mother that did her best, raising her kids and being a single parent. You know, that must have been really hard for Mrs. Osborne. And she was so kind and so forgiving. Can you imagine how she used to feel at the end of the day when it was time for her to rest? She always had Helen Betty on her mind, especially when there was nothing that happened. Justice. It's hard. In an even more tragic turn in 2008, Betty's brother Kelvin was found stabbed to death in a Winnipeg hotel room. Betty's distant cousin has tried to change things. In recent years, Gordy Ross relocated to the Paw and became a Manitoba First Nations Police Service Constable in neighboring Opisquayak Cree Nation. Quote, I don't want another Helen Betty Osborne to happen, and I'll do my best to be out here to try and prevent that. In July of 2000, a memorial in honor of Betty Osborne was placed at the site of her death near the pump house at Clearwater Lake. GPS coordinates take you alongside a desolate gravel road to the memorial north of the Paw. This is also the site of the former Guy Hill Residential School. A formal apology from the Manitoba government was issued by Gord McIntosh, Manitoba's Minister of Justice, on July 14, 2000. The apology addressed the failure of the province's justice system in Betty's case. The province created a scholarship in Betty's name for Indigenous women. As a way to remember Helen Betty Osborne, the town of Norway House named the school after her. The University of Winnipeg's Wee Chiwakanak Learning Center is located in a building named after Betty. The Aboriginal Justice Implementation Commission was formed in 1988. Its stated purpose was to examine the relationship between the Aboriginal peoples of Manitoba and the justice system. In the report, they examined the cases of Helen Betty Osborne and John Joseph Harper, who was shot by the Winnipeg Police Service. The report into Betty's case was presented in 1991. We highly recommend people read it. Before we finish this episode, we want to read an excerpt from the conclusion of that report. Again, this report was written in 1991. So for context, the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls report was concluded in 2019. 
um, and the final truth and reconciliation report was concluded in 2015. So this report was written in 1991. So it's definitely a little bit aged, but it's interesting to hear some of the language that they use inside of this report. So here is parts of the conclusion of that report. Quote, We realize, of course, that much has changed in the years since Betty Osborne's life was taken in 1971. The segregation in the school lunchrooms, the bars, and the movie theaters has, as we understand it, ended. Still, much more must be done. If the two communities make a real concerted effort to eradicate the separation, things will inevitably improve. The pervasive separation and discrimination that existed in the PAW in 1971 shows the need for increasing involvement, shows the need for increasing the involvement of the Aboriginal peoples in the institutions of mainstream Canada. Would this case have come more quickly to a conclusion if more Aboriginal persons were in the police or the Crown Prosecutor's Office? Of course, we have no way of knowing and it is pointless to speculate. But it is possible that, had there been Aboriginal persons involved in the investigation and prosecution, the necessary extra effort might have been forthcoming earlier. We do not know if it is so. We cannot know. We believe that only if the justice system employs more Aboriginal persons will such questions be avoided in the future. Until it does, such doubts and suspicions will continue to arise. It is an inescapable fact that the Osborne case demonstrates that the justice system must employ more Aboriginal persons, and it must do so immediately. The report goes on to conclude, quote, It is clear that Helen Betty Osborne would not have been killed if she was not Aboriginal. The four men who took her to her death from the streets of the Paw that night had gone out looking for an Aboriginal girl with whom to, quote, party. They found Helen Betty Osborne. When she refused to party, she was driven out of town and murdered. Those who abducted her showed a total lack of regard for her person or her rights as an individual. Those who stood by while the physical assault took place, while sexual advances were made, and while she was being beaten to death showed their own racism, sexism, and indifference. Those who knew the story and remained silent must share their guilt. We want to thank you for joining us for this episode of True North True Crime. We will be back soon with a new episode, so until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.